Chapter 19 of Plum Pudding Of Divers Ingredients Discreetly Blended and Seasoned This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Plum Pudding Of Divers Ingredients Discreetly Blended and Seasoned by Christopher Morley Chapter 19 Some Inns the other evening, we went with Titana to a ramshackle country hotel, which calls itself the Mansion House, looking forward to a fine, robust meal. It was a transparent, sunny, cool evening, when we saw on the bill of fare, half-broiled chicken, we innocently supposed that the word half was an adjective modifying the compound noun, broiled chicken. Instead, to our sorrow and disappointment, it proved to be an adverb modifying broiled. We hope we parsed the matter correctly. At any rate, the wretched fowl was blue and pallid, a little smoked on the exterior, raw and sinewy within, and an affront to the whole profession of innkeeping. Whereupon, in the days that followed, looking back at our fine mood of expectancy as we entered the hostelry, and its pitiable collapse when the miserable travesty of victuals was laid upon us, we fell to thinking about some of the inns we had known of old time where we had feasted not without good heart. To speak merely by sudden memory, for instance, there was the fine old hotel in Burlington, Vermont. Is it called the Van Ness House? Where we remember a line of cane-bottomed chairs on the long, shady veranda, where one could look out and see the town simmering in a waft of hot and dazzling sunshine that pours across Lake Champlain in the afternoon. And the Black Lion, Lavenham, Suffolk, where, unless we confuse it with a pub in Bury St. Edmunds where we had lunch, there was, in the hallway, a very fine old engraving called Pirates Decoying a Merchantman, in which one pirate, dressed in woman's clothes, stood up above the bulwarks, waving for assistance, while the cutlass ruffians crouched below, ready to do their bloody work when the other ship came near enough. Nor have we forgotten the Saracen's Head at Ware, whence we went exploring down the little river Lee on Isaac Walton's trail, nor the Swan at Bebury, in Gloucestershire, hard by that clear green water at the Colne, nor another swan at Tetsworth and Oxfordshire, which one reaches after bicycling over the beachy slope of the Chilterns, and where, in the narrow Temprum, occurred the fabled encounter between a Texas Rhodes scholar logged with port of wine and seven Oxfordshire yokels who made merry over his power of carrying the red blood of the great. Our friend C.F.B., while we were meditating these golden matters, wrote to us that he is going on a walking or bicycling trip in England next summer and asks for suggestions. We advise him to get a copy of Muirhead's England, the best general guidebook we've seen, and look up his favorite authors in the index. That will refer him to the places associated with them, and he can have rare sport in hunting them out. There is no way of pilgrimage so pleasant as to follow the spore of a well-loved writer. Referring to our black notebook, in which we keep memoranda of a modest pilgrimage we once made to the places mentioned by the two of our heroes, viz. Boswell and R.L.S., one of the regions we would be most anxious to revisit would be Dovedale, in Derbyshire. This exquisite little valley is reached from Ashbourne, where we commend the Green Man Inn, visited more than once by Dr. Johnson and Boswell. This neighborhood also has memories of George Eliot, and of Isaac Walton, who used to go fishing in the Little River Dove. His fishing house is still there, 
Unfortunately, when we were in those parts, we did not have a sense enough to see the manifold, a curious stream, a tributary of the Dove, which by its habit of running underground caused Johnson and Boswell to argue about miracles. Muirhead's book will give CFB sound counsel about the inns of that district, which are many and good. The whole region of the Derbyshire Peak is rarely visited by a foreign tourist. Of it, Dr. Johnson, with his sturdy prejudice, said, He who has seen Dovedale has no need to visit the Highlands. The metropolis of this moorland is Buxton. Unhappily, we did not make a note of the inn we visited in that town. But we have a clear recollection of Claret, Candlelight, and reading Weir of Ermiston in bed. Also a bathroom with hot water, not too common in the cheap hostelries we frequented. We can only wish for the good CFP as happy as an evening as we spent with our eccentric friend Mifflin McGill bicycling from the New Haven Inn in a July twilight. The New Haven Inn, which is only a vile kind of meager roadhouse at a lonely fork in the way, where one arm of the signpost carries the romantic legend to Haddon Hall, lies between Ashbourne and Buxton, but it is marked on all the maps, so perhaps it has an honorable history. The sun was dying in red embers over the Derbyshire hills as we paddled along. Life, liquor, and literature lay all before us, certes. We had no thought of ever writing a daily column. And finally, after our small lanterns were lit and cast their little fans of brightness along the flowing road, we ascended a rise and saw Buxton in the valley below, twinkling with lights. And when even dies, the million tinted, and the night has come, and planets glinted. Lo, the valley hollow, lamp bestarred. Nor were all these ancient inns, to which our heart wistfully returns, on British soil. There was the Hotel de la Tour, Mojois, a quaint small town somewhere in that hilly region of the Ardennes, along the border between Luxembourg and Belgium. Our memory is rather vague as de Mojois, for we got there late one evening, after more than seventy up-and-down miles on a bicycle, hypnotic with weariness and the smell of pine trees and a great warm wind that had buffeted us all day. But we have a dim, comfortable remembrance of a large, clean bedroom, unlightened, in which we duskily groped and found no less than three huge beds among which we had to choose. And we can also see a dining room brilliantly papered in scarlet, with good old prints on the walls and great wooden beams overhead. Two bottles of ice-cold beer linger in our thought, and there was some excellent work done on a large pancake, one of those durable fleshy German von Kuchen. For the odd part of it was, unless our memory is wholly amiss, Mougeois was then, 1912, supposed to be part of Germany, and they pronounced it Monjawi. But the Reich must have felt that this was not permanent, for they had not Germanized either the name of the town or the hostelry. And let us add, in this affectionate summary, the lion, Hontel Zumluen, at Sigmarien, that delicious little haunt on the upper Danube, where the castle sits on a stony jut overlooking the river. Algernon Blackwood, in one of his superb tales of fantasy, in the volume called The Listener, has told a fascinating, gruesome story of the Danube, describing a sedgy, sandy, desolate region below the Hungarian border where malevolent inhuman forces were apparent and resented mortal intrusion. But we cannot testify to anything sinister about the bright water of the Danube and the flow of its lovely youth above Sigmarien. 
And if there were any evil influences, surely in Sigmarian, the ancient home and origin of the Hohenzollerns, we believe, they would have shown themselves. In those exhilarating miles of valley, bicycled in company with a blithe vagabond, who is now a professor at Cornell, we learned why the waltz was called the Blue Danube. So heavenly a tint of transparent blue-green we have never seen elsewhere. The hurrying current sliding under steep crags of gray and yellow stone whitened upon sudden shallows into long terraces of broken water. There was a wayside chapel with painted frescoes and Latin inscriptions. Why we didn't make a note of them, we wonder? And before it was a cold gush, sluicing from a lion's mouth into a stone basin, a blue crockery mug stood on the rim, and the bowl was spotted with floating petals from pink and white rose bushes. We can still see our companion, tilting a thirsty bearded face as he drank, outlined on such a backdrop of pure romantic beauty as only enriches irresponsible youth in its commerce with the world. The river bends sharply to the left under a prodigious cliff where it is some ancient castle or religious house. There he stands, excellent fellow, forever in our memory, holding that blue mug against a Maxfeld parish scene. Just around that bend, if you are discreet, a bath can be accomplished, and you will reach the lion by supper time, vowing the Danube the loveliest of all streams. Of the lion itself, now that we compress the gland of memory more closely, we have little to report save a general sensation of cheerful comfort. That in itself is favorable. The bad inns are always accurately tabled in mind. But stay, here is a picture that unexpectedly presents itself. On that evening, it was July 15th, 1912, there was a glorious little girl, about ten years old, taking supper at the line with her parents. Through the yellow shine of the lamps, she suddenly reappears to us, across the dining room. Rather a more luxurious dining room than the two wayfarers were accustomed to visit. We can see her straight white frock, her plump brown legs and socks, not reaching the floor as she sat, her tawny golden hair with a red ribbon. The two dusty vagabonds watched her and her important-looking adults from afar. We have only the vaguest impression of her father. He was erect and handsome and not untouched with pride. Heavens, were they some minor offshoot of the Holland-Zollern tribe? We can see a head waiter smirking near their table. Across nine years and thousands of miles, they still radiate to us a faint sense of prosperity and breeding, and the child was like a princess in a fairy tale. Ah, if only it had all been a fairy tale. Could we turn back the clock to that summer evening when the dim pine alleys smelled so resinous on the Muleberg? Turn back the flow of that quick blue river. Turn back history itself and rewrite it in chapters fit for the clear eyes of that child we saw? Well, we are growing grievous. It is time to go out and have some cider. There are many other admirable ends we might soliloquize. The Seven Stars in Rotterdam, Molensteeg 19, Nabi Het Postkantur, Givens Hotel, Rutland Square, Edinburgh, well adapted for marriages, says its card, Hotel Davenport, Stamford, Connecticut, where so many palpitating playwrights have sat nervously waiting for the opening performance. The Tannhauser Hotel in Heidelberg, notable for the affability of the chambermaids. Perhaps you will permit us to close by quoting a description of an old Irish tavern from that queer book, The Life of John Buncle, Esquire, 1756. This inn bore the curious name, The Conniving House. 
the conniving house, as the gentlemen of Trinity called it in my time, and long after, was a little public house kept by Jack McLean, about a quarter of a mile beyond Ring's End, on the top of the beach, within a few yards of the sea. Here we used to have the finest fish at all times, and in the season, green peas, and all the most excellent vegetables, the ale here was always extraordinary, and everything was the best, which, with its delightful situation, rendered it a delightful place of a summer's evening. Many a delightful evening have I passed in this pretty thatched house with the famous Larry Grogan, who played on the bagpipes extreme well, dear Jack Latin, matchless on the fiddle, and the most agreeable of companions, that ever-charmed young fellow, Jack Wall, and many other delightful fellows who went in the days of their youth to the shades of eternity. When I think of them and their evening songs, we will go to Johnny McLean's to try if his ale be good or no, etc., and that years and infirmities begin to oppress me. What is life? There is a fine, easy, mellow manner of writing, worthy subject, and we, we conclude with honest regret, even to write down the names of all the inns where we have been happy would be the pleasantest possible way of spending an afternoon, but we advise you to be cautious in adopting our favorites as stopping places. Some of them are very humble. End of chapter 19